our culture is obsessed with the idea of resistance. You don't know what I mean. The basic message communicated in our culture is this. If there's anything about the world that you don't like, you've got a right to resist it. So, if you don't like what your parents tell you, resist them by rebelling. You don't like what others might be trying to impose on you, maybe their dreams or their ideas or their beliefs, resist them. You don't like a law that was passed in our parliament? Well, go down to parliament and make a protest. Resist them. You don't like what some fast food company president says? Resist them with a boycott. Resist, rebel, protest, boycott, complain, blog, petition, vote, occupy. It's everywhere. All about resisting the establishment, the status quo, or whatever you just don't like. I'm not going to delve into my personal opinion on all these kinds of resistance. Some are obviously wrong, some are good, and many others would just be questionable. But did you know that we as followers of Jesus are to be part of a resistance? Did you know that? We are. And we're to resist something that is much more insidious than just questionable rules or ideas that people have. We are to resist something so sinister and devious and diabolical that it threatens the very core of who we are. It threatens our souls, our hearts, our destinies. I'm speaking, of course, about the devil, Satan, and his temptations towards sin. Sin is dangerous and deadly, and we are to resist the devil's temptations toward it. And yet... We often treat our temptations as harmless, recreational, even enjoyable. A few months ago, as we went through the book of James, James 4.7 told us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're also told in 1 Peter 5, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him firm in your faith. And Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We're to be part of a movement of active resistance against the devil and his schemes. Did you know that that resistance was started by Jesus? He was the first to successfully resist. And today we're going to see when this resistance first started. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, if you have a pew Bible from in front of you, it's on page 859. 859 will get you to Luke chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you remember that Luke interrupted his narrative account by, of Jesus by talking about Jesus' genealogy. And in chapter 4, he picked the storyline back up, following Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Back in chapter 3, verse 22, or 21, sorry, it said this, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. 
And then we skip to chapter 4, which is where the stories pick back up. And it gives us the final story about Jesus before he began his ministry. It was Jesus' last step of preparation and likely the hardest thing he'd had to deal with yet. Before we begin reading chapter 4, though, I'd, I'd ask you to pray with me that God would open our eyes to his truth this morning. Please pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I pray we know that your word has power. We know that it can change lives. And so I pray that it would do that to us today. As we read these words, as we meditate on them, I pray that we would see your truth and we would see the devil's lies. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, we just saw, he was especially empowered by the Holy Spirit at baptism. And now the Holy Spirit is going to lead him into the wilderness with a purpose. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now here's a question. Did God, as the Holy Spirit, lead Jesus to be tempted? James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it's a good question. But it never says here that God tempted Jesus. That's not what it says. God led him to where he would be tempted, ultimately for his own good and his own strengthening, but God didn't tempt him. The devil did the tempting. The devil didn't even realize that his scheme was working as part of God's plan. This is where God wanted Jesus. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. If you don't know who the devil is, the devil is a fallen angel, also known as Satan, who has been God's archenemy since rebelling in heaven in ancient times. He was once a beautiful angel known as Lucifer, but he was corrupted by his pride. He is depicted in Scripture as a serpent, a roaring lion, and a dragon. Now, you may wonder whether the devil is even real. Our culture would say he's imaginary. We're just imagining this force of evil. But if you believe in God, there is no reason to not believe in Satan. And if you believe the Bible, then you cannot doubt his existence. The devil is real, dangerous, and evil to the core. We don't know what the devil looked like when he appeared to Jesus here. He could have appeared as an angel or as a man or as one of his creaturely images. We don't even know if he was visible. It could have just been an audible voice speaking to Jesus. But anyway, regardless, for 40 days, Jesus is in the wilderness, which is quite a long time to be alone in a desert. And over those 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. Now, those of us familiar with this story sometimes think that Jesus only had to fight off three temptations that are going to be described here, thinking this couldn't have been that difficult for Jesus. But notice, there were likely way more than just these three temptations. It says that for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. 40 days, and that these three just came at the end. Can you even imagine a full 40 days of non-stop temptation? 
Jesus must have been tempted to commit every sin in the book. But Luke is going to focus on these three, which were significant. They were not minor temptations. And each one challenged Jesus in a different and a difficult way. Throughout this whole ordeal, Jesus becomes the perfect example of how we can deal with temptation ourselves. While we will never be in the same situation as he was, temptations of many shapes and sizes do bombard us every day. And we all know that to be true. But the first temptation, first temptation Satan brought to Jesus fit the situation perfectly. He was cunning. See, while Jesus was out there in the wilderness, he was purposely fasting. It says in verse 2, he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. He wasn't eating anything, no bread, no milk, no lamb, not even locusts and honey like his cousin. (laughs) We wonder how Jesus' body could survive far beyond what the normal human capabilities are, but the fact is that there had to be some kind of supernatural strengthening going on. He was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit was keeping him alive. But Jesus had a real human body like us. And what happens when you skip a meal? You get hungry. If you skip a couple meals, or even a couple days of meals, start getting famished. Now, imagine not eating for 120 meals in a row. That's what Jesus did here. 40 days worth of not eating. Even with supernatural help, I'd imagine you'd feel like you were going to die. Verse 2 says, And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. No, duh. (laughs) And right at that time, Satan decides to use Jesus' hunger against him. When when they were ended, he was hungry, and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So he appealed to his appetite. But what we'll see in the next verse is this. This is the first thing on your notes. Jesus resisted the devil's temptation to satisfy himself physically. The devil tried, but Jesus resisted the urge to satisfy himself physically, prematurely. I think you all know what I mean when I say that Satan attacks us at our weakest points. If we're tired or sick or physically weak, we are much more prone to certain sins. And Satan's no dummy. He knows how to take advantage of us. And these times are often when we need to be most on guard when we are weaker physically. And the devil does just that to Jesus here. He attacks him when he's weakest physically. They play what I call a hunger game on a field that is not in Jesus' favor. But no one ever claimed the devil plays fair. He kicks hardest when his opponent's down. Think about how tempting this would have been to give into. I don't know if there is a more wonderful cooking smell than the smell of freshly baked bread. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, making you hungry. (laughs) But if Jesus could wait 40 days, I think you can wait 40 minutes. (laughs) But you know what I mean, how amazing freshly baked bread smells? You walk in the door of the house, bread's cooking, and you feel like walking right over and cutting yourself a piece right then and there. It's wonderful. 
And the nature of this temptation was very simple. Jesus, you're hungry. Think about the bread. (laughs) You say you're the Son of God. You say you're the Son of God. Surely the Son of God can do miracles, right? Why don't you just magically make some food for yourself? You can do that. Look, there's even some handy rocks here that you can turn into bread. You got the raw material. (laughs) And verse 3, again, he said, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Aren't you hungry, Jesus? Think about it. Imagine it. We wonder, though, what's so wrong about this temptation? I mean, eating isn't wrong. Eating bread isn't wrong. We need to eat to sustain ourselves. And Jesus should have had the power to make bread if he wanted to. So why would this have been wrong for him to give in to the devil's temptation? The key lies in the first seven words from the devil. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. It wasn't inherently wrong for Jesus to eat bread. But Satan was casting doubt on Jesus' identity and on God's goodness. That's what Satan does. He casts doubt in order to make us fall. In Eden, it was, did God really say Here in the desert, if you are the Son of God, why in the world are you on the verge of starvation? If you are the Son of God, why isn't your Father taking care of your needs? Even though we're not told the exact reason, there was a reason that Jesus was fasting here. And if Jesus gave in to the devil's temptation, he would have been going against his Father's will of preparing him for ministry of fasting in this time of preparation. He would have been saying to the Father, I want this bread more than I want to obey you. It's too desirable. Now do you see the underlying reasons that this would have been wrong for Jesus to give in? As we read this passage, you might have another question based on a verse I read earlier, and that is, can God even be tempted to sin? Jesus is supposed to be God, right? But the verse we read earlier in James 1.13 said, God cannot be tempted with evil. That seems pretty clear. So how could Jesus be tempted? Here's the thing. It's absolutely true that God cannot be tempted to sin, and Jesus was God. But don't forget, Jesus was not only God, he was also man. 100% man, and man can absolutely be tempted. So Satan was appealing to Jesus' completely real human nature. And this is equally important. Jesus' human nature is what fought him off. Jesus didn't fight off the temptation as God. He resisted in the weakness of his humanity. And that gives us hope. So Satan was trying to make Jesus the God and Jesus the man doubt that he was the Son of God. But just 40 days earlier, Jesus heard the Father directly say from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus knew he was the Son of God. He trusted his Father. And Jesus didn't need to prove anything to Satan. He didn't take the bait. Let's see Jesus' response, short and sweet. The devil said, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
It is written. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy 8.3 in the Mosaic Law. This is likely not the full quote by Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew's account, Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This simply means that our consistent need for God and his word is just as great as our need for food. Physical food cannot sustain our souls. And our souls do need sustaining. We need God. We need his word in our lives. We can be physically gratified and spiritually starved. So ask yourself today whether you are spiritually starving for God and his word. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're going to see all three temptations that are thrown Jesus' way. Jesus retorts back with quotations from Scripture. Why does he respond with God's word to temptation? Because God's word has the power to fight off temptation. Much more power than we have on our own. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God that we use to fight off spiritual warfare. And the only offensive weapon we are given is God's word, called the sword of the Spirit. Jesus used the word of God to fend off Satan. And as he did so, it is absolutely exemplary for us. Why would we not use the same method that Jesus used to fend off the devil? Now, you're not always going to have your Bible on you to look up passages when temptations come. So this does speak to the value of Scripture meditation and memorization. A few months ago, we made some worksheets available to you. And they gave a number of possible verses to use as temptation comes and faces you. Because we all struggle in different areas in our lives. And we all struggle with different sins. And so we, uh, if you want, we printed off some more at the back for you today that you can take with you. It is just a tool. There's many, many, many more verses in God's Word that you can use. But it's a tool that you can use to help because God's Word is powerful. In Ephesians six fourteen, it says that Satan shoots flaming darts of temptation at us. But in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, God says that his word is like a fire with its power. So you know what I say? We need to fight fire with fire. And if you use God's word well, Satan's little darts stand no chance. As Jesus fought off the physical urge to find satisfaction in food. You should also consider what kind of physical temptations might Satan be shooting at us, even today? Perhaps they are related to food, either eating gluttonously or starving yourself unwisely. Perhaps they're related to finding satisfaction sexually, adultery, lusting, Porn, sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse, even just pleasing yourself. Those are, food and sex are just two of the many, many physical temptations that the devil uses to trip us up. Hear this physical sins will never truly satisfy you, only God can satisfy you. 
Sins might bring immediate gratification, but they will bring long-term destruction. Are you fighting off the physical temptations of Satan in your life? You can't do it on your own. So rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on his word to help you. In the story here, Jesus rebuffed Satan once, but Satan doesn't just give up. And that's the same with us. If we're able to fight off one temptation, another one usually follows quickly on its heels, and usually more intense than the last one. And the second temptation here seems like a much grander one than simply filling a stomach. Verse 5 goes like this, And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What we see here is this, that Jesus resisted the devil's temptation to gain worldly power. Satan brought a temptation of power and authority and glory, but Jesus again fought it off. It says that Satan took Jesus up, probably up a mountain, getting a good view of things. And Satan probably showed, or Satan showed somehow the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. He probably could have seen some of them from his vantage point, and Satan perhaps showed him others in a vision. We don't know whether Satan showed him the kingdoms from that time, which would have largely consisted of Rome and all its underlying kingdoms, or whether he showed him future kingdoms as well, perhaps the Mongol or the Byzantine or the French and Spanish and British and American empires, great empires over the years, and all the other kingdoms. The temptation is easy to see. Satan offered Jesus authority and glory through power. Authority and glory through power. He said to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given to me or delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. He was saying, I can make you the Roman emperor if you wanted. Think about that, Jesus. You could be Caesar, all his power. Or I can make you the king or the ruler, the potentate, the czar, the president, the prime minister. You'd be the most powerful person the world has ever seen. Imagine the power the kingdom of Satan would have if it was allied with the kingdom of Christ. That'd be some kingdom. And we might think, wait a minute, didn't Jesus already have all that power? Yes and no. He did have it before, and he would have it again one day. But remember, for his time on earth, Jesus willingly gave up that power. If you think about it, this would have just made the temptation stronger. Because not only did he not have that kind of power currently, he also knew what he was missing in not having it. We also wonder, though, well, did Satan really have that kind of power to offer Jesus? Again, yes and no. Satan had a fair amount of power on earth, and he is allowed to exercise a lot of that power for the time being. Several times, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. But here's the thing. Satan didn't have all 
the power, as he seems to imply here. He's acting as the ultimate power broker, and he didn't have that power. He was still under God's sovereign reign and control. So Satan was telling Jesus a half-truth, which is the nature of most of his lies. He was offering Jesus more than he had the right to give. We know that Jesus was promised the kingdom one day by his father. He was destined to become king of kings and lord of lords. But the path that God had marked out for him by which he'd become king was long and hard. Satan was offering him the kingship instantly. Again, casting doubt on the father's care. If God is your father, why aren't you a king already? I can make you king now. Philip Ryken says that Satan was offering Jesus the ecstasy without the agony. The kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of Christ without the scorn, the scourging, the spitting, and the bloody crucifixion. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. The crown without the cross. Taking the easy way out. Very tempting. However, This was a conditional offer. Satan wanted something in return. He wasn't just going to give up his power to Jesus. said in verse 6, I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here we see the root desire of Satan's, which was the same from when he fell from heaven. The devil was jealous of God's glory. He wanted to be worshipped like God. And I'd imagine that Jesus was strongly tempted by the power he was being offered, but not by the condition. And Jesus knew exactly how to respond to such an offer. Verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is quoted from Deuteronomy 6.13, which is a restatement of the first of the Ten Commandments, worshiping God alone. Now, You might not think you struggle with this temptation of power that Jesus faced. But I believe we do all often desire earthly gain or glory instead of suffering for the sake of Christ. We'd rather be popular and well-liked than to be known as a Christian. We'd rather get that bigger house, that nicer car, or that second car, third car, than to give to the needy. We'd rather gain the riches of this earth than the riches of heaven. We'd much rather take the easy road out than the hard road. These are all temptations of the devil, which we don't often recognize as such. And as we give in to these temptations, we may not be directly worshiping Satan. But I'll tell you this, we are not worshiping God alone with our lives. We are likely worshiping ourselves. Which I'll tell you, Satan is just as happy about. We need to see Jesus' example for us, humbly accepting the crown after the cross. Not without it. The 
Satan's final temptation of Jesus is an interesting one. The first two temptations make a lot of sense as things that are desirable. Food and power. The third temptation is different. Read with me in verse 9. It says, The devil took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This temptation does not sound appealing. It sounds crazy. As I read this this week, I was thinking, why in the world would Jesus ever do this? Why is this tempting? Eating fresh bread or becoming an emperor? Tempting. Throwing yourself off a building? Not so much. (laughs) Here's the key, okay? The first temptation attacked Jesus' physicality. The second temptation attacked Jesus' ambition. The third temptation attacked Jesus' spirituality or godliness. It attacked his trust. It called into question how godly Jesus actually was. Satan wanted him to prove it. And Jesus, of all people, would have definitely desired to prove his godliness. He was God, after all. Satan took Jesus to another new location, this time a very famous one, the temple in Jerusalem. Took him to the pinnacle of the temple, which was a huge drop. This was either the roof of the temple, which was 16 to 20 stories high. That's about 10 to 25 meters taller than the Peace Tower at Parliament, if you need a frame of reference. Okay? Or this was a part of the temple that overlooked the Kidron Valley, dropping about 450 feet to the valley floor below. Either way, Satan took Jesus there, challenged him to jump off, trusting that God would send his angels to catch him. Do you notice that the devil changed his tactics here? He noticed that Jesus kept quoting scripture. So Satan decided to trip him up by quoting some scripture himself. Satan said this time, it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. However, Satan was blatantly misquoting the scripture. It's taken from Psalm 91. The psalmist there never meant for people to test or force God into protecting them. That's not what he was saying, but that's how Satan is trying to quote it. Despite the attractiveness of proving his faith in God, Jesus refused. And in so doing, Jesus resisted the devil's temptation to confirm God's care. To confirm God's care for him. Satan wanted Jesus to test God's power and his care for his son. But Jesus resisted the devil and his temptation once more. You notice that the devil once again started this temptation with, If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Like both previous temptations, the devil was once again trying to get Jesus to doubt. To doubt his identity as the Son of God. To doubt the Father's care for him. The devil really was trying to get Jesus to live by sight, not by faith. Daryl Bach says this, that such a test would be presumptuous of Jesus. And really would be unbelief masquerading as faith. D.A. Carson says, The devil made out this act to be a demonstration of Jesus' trust as a son in his father. It would, in fact, have been an act of unbelief. People don't test somebody in whom they have complete trust, especially when that person is God. This was a daredevilish stunt 
and Jesus saw right through it. In verse 12, Jesus said, He answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He knew that giving into this temptation would be testing God. Testing God in his love, his care, or his power was strictly forbidden and sinful in Scripture because it implied distrust and unbelief on the part of the tester. The point is, Jesus trusted God implicitly. He didn't need to prove anything to Satan, and more importantly, he didn't need to prove anything to himself. He knew who he was. He trusted his Father for the time that that would be proven to the world. When Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, he was fortifying himself once again to never test his father. However, I think he may have had a double meaning. I think he may have been telling Satan this as well. Not to test the son either. Jesus would have been testing God if he gave in. Satan was already testing God. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you ever have feelings of doubt about God? Do you ever wonder if he loves you? Or maybe if he'll really take care of you? Satan wants us to live by sight, not by faith. And so he sows these seeds of doubt in our hearts. And then we start basing our faith and our attitudes about God on our personal experience instead of on the truth of his word. We believe that God is good as long as life is good. You ever feel that way? Believing God is good as long as your life is good? Or we start wanting God to prove himself to us. We start making up tests for him. God, if you're real, you'll do this for me. If you care about me, you'll do this. Let me tell you, God will not be forced into some box you make for him. We've got to see those stabs of doubt for exactly what they are, and they're devilish temptations. God is good. God is love. God cares for you. Take him at his word. If you think about it, each of these temptations must have been insulting to Jesus. The first one told him he wasn't satisfied enough. The second one told him he wasn't powerful enough. And the third one told him he wasn't godly enough. He didn't have enough faith. All of these temptations were absolute lies from the father of lies. Lies are at the core of many of our temptations as well. Usually, they follow the same pattern. That we cannot be satisfied in God, so try something else. Or that God is not strong enough to help us, so help yourself. Or that we are condemned failures without any hope at all, so wallow in it. You know what all those are? They are lies. Lies 
damned lies. They come from the devil. We can be completely and eternally satisfied in God. When we are weak, he is strong. And yes, we are condemned failures, but there is glorious hope in Jesus. Got to see the truth through the lies. As we come to close, you might wonder, what was the point of these temptations? What was Satan trying to do through them? Why, or what did Jesus prove? Why does this matter to us? Why is this in the Bible? Here's what I would offer you as a way of summing up the point of this story. That's this. That by resisting the devil's temptations, Jesus remained sinless, proving his power over Satan and sin. By resisting the devil, Jesus proved his power over Satan. And by resisting the temptations, Jesus proved his power over sin by remaining sinless. Satan must have left this time so frustrated. No man had ever stood up to such intense temptation before. Adam was easy. Abraham, Moses, David, they'd all given in. They'd all sinned. Job eventually gave in. But while Satan could tempt Jesus... He couldn't make him fall. Jesus went 40 days withstanding the fiery darts of temptation. And so, Satan finally gave up. At least for now. Verse 13 tells us, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan isn't mentioned again by name in Luke until chapter 22 which interestingly is when he indwelt Judas Iscariot. We wonder, why would Satan make such an effort to trip Jesus up anyway? Why would he stay with him for 40 days trying to get him to fall? Well, it was a once-in-eternity opportunity for him. Satan didn't know what Jesus would do to bring salvation to earth, but Satan knew that whatever he would do would be attacking his kingdom. And so he knew that if he could get Jesus to sin, it would destroy Jesus' mission. These were not just some trivial temptations in the desert. The stakes were impossibly high. If Jesus fell, his coming to earth would be completely useless. If Jesus sinned, he would not be able to pay the penalty for our sins. His death on the cross would have become just like any other death of any other person in history. And since his sacrifice would not have been accepted by God, he likely would have never risen from the dead. But Satan didn't realize. He tried to trip Jesus up. How futile his scheme actually was. Jesus did remain sinless despite the temptation. Jesus did go to the cross as a sinless man, paying the penalty for our sins. And Jesus did rise from the dead, triumphing over sin and Satan forever. That's where he crippled the devil's kingdom. Have you made this Jesus your savior? Your savior from sin 
and Satan. There is great hope in Jesus. But you're hopeless without him. You must believe in him by faith. Don't put him to the test. You must repent of your sins, turning to live a changed life in his power. And you can do this today. The Holy Spirit's drawing you. Don't put it off. Don't resist God. I'd love to talk with you if you want to talk some more about that. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews that shed some further light on this story. We actually read it together earlier in the service. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I'm going to read it again for you. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of all humans, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This tells us that because Jesus became a man, fully like us, and as a man, he suffered through all kinds of temptations, just like us, because of this, he has accomplished salvation. He has become our high priest in heaven, and now he offers help to all those who are still tempted on earth, and that's us. Hebrews says more later, in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is able to sympathize with our struggles because he's been there, and he conquered over them. And so now he bids us to draw near to his throne, to find that mercy and grace that we so desperately need. Even as we talk and think about temptation, I think we often start feeling guilty about how we failed over and over again. Think, well, Jesus may have withstood temptation, but we seem to fall all the time. But listen, if Jesus is your Savior, your sinful soul is counted free. And he stands in heaven now offering help for every one of your temptations. When we're faced with temptation, we often think we're in battle alone, destined to lose. But you're not alone. You have the love of God the Father. You have the Son of God as your high priest in heaven. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And you have the Word of God as a mighty weapon at hand. Because of Jesus, 
There is hope for all the temptations that Satan throws our way. In studying this passage this week, I was struck by something interesting. I think there's a reason that Luke put this story right after the genealogy that we read last week. In Luke 3.38, the verse right before this chapter, Jesus is described as the distant grandson of Adam, the son of Adam. And Adam is most known for being the first man on earth and also the first man who sinned. Get this, okay? Try to follow with me. Adam gave in to Satan's temptation in paradise and thus was cast into the wilderness. But then along comes Jesus, the second Adam, in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus resisted Satan's temptations, thus beginning to regain paradise. Michael Wilcock talks about this. This is a bit of a lengthy quote. Try to follow along. It says, Jesus is, in fact, going right back to the beginning, back to square one. He is the new Adam. In Eden, the head of the human race was confronted by the tempter, disobeyed God's word, and set the whole of mankind off on the wrong track. Now comes the second Adam, and alone in the wilderness, he in turn confronts the tempter. The difference is that he will win. He will be the totally obedient man, man as he was meant to be, man who is altogether righteous, man who never loses his relationship with God through sin. In the mid-1600s, the poet John Milton wrote two epic poems about this. And by epic, I mean epic. It was over 10,000 lines of poetry. <laughs> but you might recognize the names. He wrote the, he called them Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. Paradise Lost was all about Adam and Eve's struggle with Satan in the garden. Paradise Regained was based on Luke 4, about Satan's temptation of Jesus. And in Paradise Regained, speaking about Jesus, John Milton says this, Recovered paradise to all mankind, by one man's firm obedience fully tried. Through all temptation and the tempter foiled, in all his wiles defeated and repulsed, and Eden raised in the waste wilderness. Saying that Eden began to come back to life when Jesus defeated the devil's temptation. Paradise wasn't fully regained then, but this was the start. This was the beginning of the resistance. He joined the resistance. It's a resistance that's destined to win. One day, because of Jesus, our paradise is guaranteed to be fully regained. Let's pray.